The Dark Tower, The Gunslinger, by Stephen King, K-I-N-G, a signet book published by the Penguin Group, Penguin Books, Canada Limited, 10 Alcorn Avenue, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, M4V3B2, copyright 1982 by Stephen King. This work is reproduced in alternate format under license from the Canadian Copyright Licensing Agency, CanCopy. 315 pages. Narrated by Bob Shannon. Recorded by volunteers in the studios of the CNIB Library for the Blind, Toronto. Exclusively for the use of individuals unable to read print due to a visual or physical handicap. This book is protected by copyright and may not be duplicated. About this Daisy Talking Book. This Daisy Digital Talking Book allows you to go directly to the headings in it and go from one heading to the next. You can access these headings quickly by using the controls on your Daisy Player. If you are using Daisy Playback software on your computer, you can also access any heading by searching for a word or words in that heading. There is one level of heading in this book, for example, chapter. This Daisy book has been made from a talking book originally recorded onto tape. It does not contain page numbers or page access, but you can move forward and backward by sentences or phrases. The Gunslinger The man in black fled across the desert, and the gunslinger followed. The desert was the apotheosis of all deserts, huge, standing to the sky for what might have been parsecs in all directions, white, blinding, waterless, without feature save for the faint cloudy haze of the mountains which sketched themselves on the horizon, and the devil grass which brought sweet dreams, nightmares, death. An occasional tombstone sign pointed the way. For once the drifted track that cut its way through the thick crust of alkali had been a highway, and coaches had followed it. The world had moved on since then. The world had emptied. The gunslinger walked stolidly, not hurrying, not loafing. A hide water bag was slung around his middle like a bloated sausage. It was almost full. He had progressed through the kef over many years, and had reached the fifth level. At the seventh or eighth he would not have been thirsty. He could have watched his own body dehydrate with clinical, detached attention watering its crevices and dark inner hollows only when his logic told him it must be done. He was not seventh or eighth. He was fifth. So he was thirsty, although he had no particular urge to drink. In a vague way, all this pleased him. It was romantic. Below the water bag were his guns, finely weighted to his hand. The two belts crisscrossed above his crotch. The holsters were oiled too deeply for even this Philistine sun to crack. The stocks of the guns were sandalwood, yellow and finely grained. The holsters were tied down with rawhide cord, and they swung heavily against his hips. The brass casings of the cartridges looped into the gun belts twinkled and flashed and heliographed in the sun. The leather made subtle creaking noises. The guns themselves made no noise. They had spilled blood. There was no need to make noise in the sterility of the desert. His clothes were the no color of rain or dust. His shirt was open at the throat, with a rawhide thong dangling loosely in hand-punched eyelets. 
His pants were seam-stretched dungarees. He breasted a gently rising dune. Although there was no sand here, the desert was hardpan, and even the harsh winds that blew when dark came raised only an aggravating harsh dust-like scouring powder, and saw the kicked remains of a tiny campfire on the lee side, the side which the sun would quit earliest. Small signs like this, once more affirming the man in black's essential humanity, never failed to please him. His lips stretched in the pitted, flaked remains of his face. He squatted. He had burned the devil grass, of course. It was the only thing out here that would burn. It burned with a greasy, flat light, and it burned slow. Border dwellers had told him that devils lived even in the flames. They burned it but would not look into the light. They said the devils hypnotized, beckoned, would eventually draw the one who looked into the fires, and the next man foolish enough to look into the fire might see you. The burned grass was crisscrossed in the now familiar ideographic pattern, and crumbled to gray senselessness before the gunslinger's prodding hand. There was nothing in the remains but a charred scrap of bacon, which he ate thoughtfully. It had always been this way. The gunslinger had followed the man in black across the desert for two months now, across the endless, screamingly monotonous purgatorial wastes, and had yet to find spore other than the hygienic, sterile ideographs of the man in black's campfires. He had not found a can, a bottle, or a water bag. The gunslinger had left four of those behind like dead snakeskins. Perhaps the campfires are a message, spelled out letter by letter. Take a powder, or the end draweth nigh, or maybe even eat at Joe's. It didn't matter. He had no understanding of the ideograms, if they were ideograms, and the remains were as cold as all the others. He knew he was closer, but did not know how he knew. That didn't matter either. He stood up, brushing his hands. No other trace. The wind, razor-sharp, had of course filed away even what scant tracks the hard pan held. He had never even been able to find his quarry's droppings. Nothing. Only these cold campfires along the ancient highway, and the relentless range-finder in his own head. He sat down, and allowed himself a short pull from the water-bag. He scanned the desert, looked up at the sun, which was now sliding down the far quadrant of the sky. He got up, removed his gloves from his belt, and began to pull devil grass for his own fire, which he laid over the ashes the man in black had left. He found the irony, like the romance of his thirst, bitterly appealing. He did not use the flint and steel until the remains of the day were only the fugitive heat in the ground beneath him and a sardonic orange line on the monochrome western horizon. He watched the south patiently, toward the mountains, not hoping or expecting to see the thin straight line of smoke from a new campfire, but merely watching because that was a part of it. There was nothing. He was close, but only relatively so, not close enough to see smoke at dusk. He struck his spark to the dry, shredded grass and lay down upwind, letting the dream smoke blow out toward the waste. The wind, except for occasional gyrating dust devils, was constant. Above, the stars were unwinking, also constant. Suns and worlds by the million, dizzying constellations, cold fire in every primary hue. As he watched, 
The sky washed from violet to ebony. A meteor etched a brief spectacular arc and winked out. The fire threw strange shadows as the devil grass burned its slow way down into new patterns. Not ideograms, but a straightforward criss-cross, vaguely frightening in its own no-nonsense surety. He had laid his fuel in a pattern that was not artful, but only workable. It spoke of blacks and whites. It spoke of a man who might straighten bad pictures in strange hotel rooms. The fire burned its steady, slow flame, and phantoms danced in its incandescent core. The gunslinger did not see. He slept. The two patterns, art and craft, were welded together. The wind moaned. Every now and then a perverse downdraft would make the smoke whirl and eddy toward him, and sporadic whiffs of the smoke touched him. They built dreams in the same way that a small irritant may build a pearl in an oyster. Occasionally the gunslinger moaned with the wind. The stars were as indifferent to this as they were to wars, crucifixions, resurrections. This also would have pleased him. 2. He had come down off the last of the foothills, leading the donkey, whose eyes were already dead and bulging with the heat. He had passed the last town three weeks before, and since then there had only been the deserted coach track and an occasional huddle of border dwellers, sod dwellings. The huddles had degenerated into single dwellings, most inhabited by lepers or madmen. He found the madmen better company. One had given him a stainless steel silver compass and bade him give it to Jesus. The gunslinger took it gravely. If he saw him, he would turn over the compass. He did not expect to. Five days had passed since the last hut, and he had begun to suspect there would be no more when he topped the last eroded hill and saw the familiar low-backed sod roof. The dweller, a surprisingly young man with a wild shock of strawberry hair that reached almost to his waist, was weeding a scrawny stand of corn with zealous abandon. The mule let out a wheezing grunt, and the dweller looked up, glaring blue eyes coming target center on the gunslinger in a moment. He raised both hands in curt salute, and then bent to the corn again, humping up the row next to his hut with back bent tossing devil-grass and an occasional stunted corn-plant over his shoulder. His hair flopped and flew in the wind that now came directly from the desert, with nothing to break it. The gunslinger came down the hill slowly, leading the donkey on which his water-skins sloshed. He paused by the edge of the lifeless-looking corn-patch, drew a drink from one of his skins to start the saliva, and spat into the arid soil. Life for your crop! Life for your own, the dweller answered and stood up. His back popped audibly. He surveyed the gunslinger without fear. The little of his face visible between beard and hair seemed unmarked by the rot, and his eyes, while a bit wild, seemed sane. I don't have anything but corn and beans, he said. Corn's free, but you'll have to kick something in for the beans. A man brings them out once in a while. He don't stay long. The dweller laughed shortly, afraid of spirits. I expect he thinks you're one. I expect he does. They looked at each other in silence for a moment. The dweller put out his hand. Brown is my name. The gunslinger shook his hand. As he did so, a scrawny raven croaked from the low peak of the sod roof. The dweller gestured at it briefly. That's Zoltan. 
At the sound of its name, the raven croaked again and flew across to Brown. It landed on the dweller's head and roosted, talons firmly twined in the wild thatch of hair. Screw you, Zoltan croaked brightly. Screw you and the horse you rode in on. The gunslinger nodded amiably. Beans, beans, the musical fruit, the raven recited, inspired. The more you eat, the more you toot. You teach him that? That's all he wants to learn, I guess, Brown said. Tried to teach him the Lord's Prayer once. His eyes traveled out beyond the hut for a moment, toward the gritty, featureless hardpan. Guess this ain't Lord's Prayer country. You're a gunslinger, that right? Yes. He hunkered down and brought out his makings. Zoltan launched himself from Brown's head and landed flittering on the gunslinger's shoulder. After the other one, I guess. Yes. The inevitable question formed in his mouth. How long since he passed by? Brown shrugged. I don't know. Time's funny out here. More than two weeks. Less than two months. The bean man's been twice since he passed. I'd guess six weeks. That's probably wrong. The more you eat, the more you toot, Soltan said. Did he stop off? The gunslinger asked. Brown nodded. He stayed supper, same as you will, I guess. We passed the time. The gunslinger stood up, and the bird flew back to the roof, squawking. He felt an odd, trembling eagerness. What did he talk about? Brown cocked an eyebrow at him. Not much. Did it ever rain, and when did I come here, and had I buried my wife? I did most of the talking, which ain't usual. He paused, and the only sound was the stark wind. He's a sorcerer, ain't he? Yes. Brown nodded slowly. I knew. Are you? I'm just a man. You'll never catch him. I'll catch him. They looked at each other, a sudden depth of feeling between them, the dweller upon his dust-puffed-dry ground, the gunslinger on the hard pan that shelved down to the desert. He reached for his flint. Here. Brown produced a sulfur-headed match and struck it with a grimed nail. The gunslinger pushed the tip of his smoke into the flame and drew. Thanks. You'll want to fill your skins, the dweller said, turning away. Spring is under the eaves and back. I'll start dinner. The gunslinger stepped gingerly over the rows of corn and went around back. The spring was at the bottom of a hand-dug well, lined with stones to keep the powdery earth from caving. As he descended the rickety ladder, the gunslinger reflected that the stones must represent two years' work easily, hauling, dragging, laying. The water was clear but slow-moving, and filling the skins was a long chore. While he was topping the second, Zoltan perched on the lip of the well. "'Screw you and the horse you rode in on,' he advised. He looked up, startled. The shaft was about fifteen feet deep, easy enough for Brown to drop a rock on him, break his head, and steal everything on him. A crazy or a rotter wouldn't do it. Brown was neither. Yet he liked Brown, and so he pushed the thought out of his mind and got the rest of his water. What came, came. When he came through the hut's door and walked down the steps— the hovel proper was set below ground level, designed to catch and hold the coolness of the nights. Brown was poking ears of corn into the embers of a tiny fire with a hardwood spatula. Two ragged plates had been set at opposite ends of a dun blanket. Water for the beans was just beginning to bubble in a pot hung over the fire. I'll pay for the water, too. Brown did not look up. The water's a gift from God. Papa Doc brings the beans. 
The gunslinger grunted a laugh and sat down with his back against one rude wall, folded his arms, and closed his eyes. After a little, the smell of roasting corn came to his nose. There was a pebbly rattle as Brown dumped a paper of dry beans into the pot. An occasional tack, tack, tack as Zoltan walked restlessly on the roof. He was tired. He had been going sixteen and sometimes eighteen hours a day between here and the horror that had occurred in Tull, the last village. And he had been afoot for the last twelve days. The mule was at the end of its endurance. Tack, tack, tack. Two weeks, Brown had said, or as much as six. Didn't matter. There had been calendars in Tull, and they had remembered the man in black because of the old man he had healed on his way through. Just an old man dying with the weed. An old man of thirty-five. And if Brown was right, the man in black had lost ground since then. But the desert was next, and the desert would be hell. Tack, tack, tack. Lend me your wings, bird. I'll spread them and fly on the thermals. He slept. Three. Brown woke him up five hours later. It was dark. The only light was the dull cherry glare of the banked embers. Your mule has passed on, Brown said. Dinner's ready. How? Brown shrugged. Roasted and boiled. How else? You picky? No, the mule. It just laid over, that's all. It looked like an old mule. And with a touch of apology, Zoltan at the eyes. Oh, he might have expected it. All right. Brown surprised him again when they sat down to the blanket that served as a table, by asking a brief blessing. Rain, health, expansion to the spirit. Do you believe in an afterlife? The gunslinger asked him as Brown dropped three ears of corn onto his plate. Brown nodded. I think this is it. Four. The beans were like bullets, the corn tough. Outside, the prevailing wind snuffled and whined around the ground-level eaves. He ate quickly, ravenously, drinking four cups of water with the meal. Halfway through, there was a machine-gun rapping at the door. Brown got up and let Zoltan in. The bird flew across the room and hunched moodily in the corner. "'Musical fruit,' he muttered. After dinner, the gunslinger offered his tobacco. "'Now, now the questions will come.' But Brown asked no questions. He smoked and looked at the dying embers of the fire. It was already noticeably cooler in the hovel. "'Lead us not into temptation,' Zoltan said suddenly, apocalyptically. The gunslinger started as if he had been shot at. He was suddenly sure that it was an illusion, all of it. Not a dream, no, an enchantment. That the man in black had spun a spell— and was trying to tell him something in a maddeningly obtuse, symbolic way. "'Have you been through Tull?' he asked suddenly. Brown nodded. "'Coming here and wants to sell corn. It rained that year, lasted maybe fifteen minutes. The ground just seemed to open and suck it up. An hour later it was just as white and dry as ever. But the corn! God, the corn! You could see it grow. That wasn't so bad. But you could hear it, as if the rain had given it a mouth.' It wasn't a happy sound. It seemed to be sighing and groaning its way out of the earth. He paused. I had extras, so I took it and sold it. Papa Doc said he'd do it, but he would have cheated me, so I went. You don't like town? No. I almost got killed there, the gunslinger said abruptly. That's so? 
I killed a man that was touched by God, the gunslinger said, only it wasn't God, it was the man in black. He laid you a trap. Yes. They looked at each other across the shadows, the moment taking on overtones of finality. Now the questions will come. But Brown had nothing to say. His smoke was a smoldering roach, but when the gunslinger tapped his poke, Brown shook his head. Zoltan shifted restlessly, seemed about to speak, subsided. May I tell you about it? the gunslinger asked. Sure. The gunslinger searched for words to begin and found none. I have to flow, he said. Brown nodded. The water does that. The corn, please? Sure. He went up the stairs and out into the dark. The stars glittered overhead in a mad splash. The wind pulsed steadily. His urine arched out over the powdery cornfield in a wavering stream. The man in black had sent him here. Brown might even be the man in black himself. It might be. He shut the thoughts away. The only contingency he had not learned how to bear was the possibility of his own madness. He went back inside. Have you decided if I'm an enchantment yet? Brown asked, amused. The gunslinger paused on the tiny landing, startled. Then he came down slowly and sat. I started to tell you about Tull. Is it growing? It's dead, the gunslinger said, and the words hung in the air. Brown nodded. The desert. I think it may strangle everything eventually. Did you know that there was once a coach road across the desert? The gunslinger closed his eyes, his mind whirled crazily. You doped me, he said thickly. No, I've done nothing. The gunslinger opened his eyes warily. You won't feel right about it unless I invite you, Brown said, and so I do. Will you tell me about Tull? The gunslinger opened his mouth hesitantly and was surprised to find that this time the words were there. He began to speak in flat bursts that slowly spread into an even, slightly toneless narrative. The doped feeling left him, and he found himself oddly excited. He talked deep into the night. Brown did not interrupt at all. Neither did the bird. Five. He had bought the mule in Pricetown, and when he reached Tull, it was still fresh. The sun had set an hour earlier, but the gunslinger had continued traveling, guided by the town glow in the sky, then by the uncannily clear notes of a honky-tonk piano playing Hey Jude. The road widened as it took on tributaries. The forests had been gone long now, replaced by the monotonous flat country. Endless, desolate fields gone to timothy and low shrubs. Shacks, eerie, deserted estates guarded by brooding, shadowed mansions where demons undeniably walked. Leering, empty shanties where the people had either moved on or had been moved along, an occasional dweller's hovel, given away by a single flickering point of light in the dark or by sullen inbred clans toiling silently in the fields by day. Corn was the main crop, but there were beans and also some peas. An occasional scrawny cow stared at him lumpishly from between peeled alder poles. Coaches had passed him four times, twice coming and twice going, nearly empty as they came up on him from behind and bypassed him and his mule, fuller as they headed back toward the forests of the north. It was ugly country. It had showered twice since he had left Pricetown, grudgingly both times. Even the Timothy looked yellow and dispirited. Ugly country. 
He had seen no sign of the man in black. Perhaps he had taken a coach. The road made a bend, and beyond it the gunslinger clucked the mule to a stop and looked down at Tull. It was at the floor of a circular, bull-shaped hollow, a shoddy jewel in a cheap setting. There were a number of lights, most of them clustered around the area of the music. There looked to be four streets, three running at right angles to the coach road, which was the main avenue of the town. Perhaps there would be a restaurant. He doubted it, but perhaps. He clucked at the mule. More houses sporadically lined the road now, most of them still deserted. He passed a tiny graveyard with moldy, leaning wooden slabs overgrown and choked by the rank devil grass. Perhaps five hundred feet further on he passed a chewed sign which read, Tull. The paint was flaked almost to the point of illegibility. There was another further on, but the gunslinger was not able to read that one at all. A fool's chorus of half-stoned voices was rising in the final protracted lyric of Hey Jude. Na-na-na, na-na-na-na, hey Jude. As he entered the town proper, it was a dead sound, like the wind in the hollow of a rotted tree. Only the prosaic thump and pound of the honky-tonk piano saved him from seriously wondering if the man in black might not have raised ghosts to inhabit a deserted town. He smiled a little at the thought. There were a few people on the streets, not many, but a few. Three ladies wearing black slacks and identical midi blouses passed by on the opposite boardwalk, not looking at him with pointed curiosity. Their faces seemed to swim above their all-but-invisible bodies like huge, pallid baseballs with eyes. A solemn old man with a straw hat perched firmly on top of his head watched him from the steps of a boarded-up grocery store. A scrawny tailor with a late customer paused to watch him by. He held up the lamp in his window for a better look. The gunslinger nodded. Neither the tailor nor his customer nodded back. He could feel their eyes resting heavily against the low-slung holsters that lay against his hips. A young boy, perhaps thirteen, and his girl crossed the street a block up, pausing imperceptibly. Their footfalls raised little hanging clouds of dust. A few of the street-side lamps worked, but their glass sides were cloudy with congealed oil. Most had been crashed out. There was a livery, probably depending on the coach line for its survival. Three boys were crouched silently around a marble ring drawn in the dust to one side of the barn's gaping maw, smoking corn-shuck cigarettes. They made long shadows in the yard. The gunslinger let his mule pass them and looked into the dim depths of the barn. One lamp glowed sunkenly, and a shadow jumped and flickered as a gangling old man in bib overalls forked loose Timothy Hay into the hayloft with huge grunting swipes of his fork. Hey, the gunslinger called. The fork faltered, and the hostler looked around waspishly. Hey, yourself. I got a mule here. Good for you. The gunslinger flicked a heavy, unevenly milled gold piece into the semi-dark. It rang on the old, chaff-drifted boards and glittered. The hostler came forward, bent, picked it up, squinted at the gunslinger. His eyes dropped to the gun belts, and he nodded sourly. How long you want em put up? A night, maybe two, maybe longer. I ain't got no change for gold. I'm not asking for any. Blood money, the hostler muttered. What? Nothing. 
The hostler caught the mule's bridle and led him inside. "'Rub him down,' the gunslinger called. The old man did not turn. The gunslinger walked out to the boys, crouched around the marble ring. They had watched the entire exchange with contemptuous interest. "'How are they hanging?' the gunslinger asked conversationally. No answer. "'You dudes live in town?' No answer. One of the boys removed a crazily tilted twist of corn shuck from his mouth, grasped a green cat's-eye marble, and squirted it into the dirt circle. It struck a croaker and knocked it outside. He picked up the cat's-eye and prepared to shoot again. "'There a restaurant in this town?' the gunslinger asked. One of them looked up, the youngest. There was a huge cold sore at the corner of his mouth, but his eyes were still ingenuous. He looked at the gunslinger with hooded, brimming wonder that was touching and frightening. "'Might get a burger at Sheb's. That the honky-tonk?' The boy nodded but didn't speak. The eyes of his playmates had turned ugly and hostile. The gunslinger touched the brim of his hat. "'I'm grateful. It's good to know someone in this town is bright enough to talk.' He walked past, mounted the boardwalk, and started down toward Sheb's, hearing the clear, contemptuous voice of one of the others, hardly more than a childish treble. "'Weed-eater! How long you been screwing your sister, Charlie? Weed-eater!' There were three flaring kerosene lamps in front of Sheb's, one to each side and one nailed above the drunk-hung bat-wing doors. The chorus of Hey Jude had petered out, and the piano was plinking some other old ballad. Voices murmured like broken threads. The gunslinger paused outside for a moment, looking in. Sawdust floor, spittoons by the tipsy-legged tables, a plank bar on sawhorses, a gummy mirror behind it reflecting the piano player who wore an inevitable piano stool slouch. The front of the piano had been removed so you could watch the wooden keys whonk up and down as the contraption was played. The bartender was a straw-haired woman wearing a dirty blue dress. One strap was held with a safety pin. There were perhaps six townies in the back of the room, juicing and playing Watch Me apathetically. Another half-dozen were grouped loosely about the piano. Four or five at the bar, and an old man with wild gray hair collapsed at a table by the doors. The gunslinger went in. Heads swiveled to look at him and his guns. There was a moment of near silence except for the oblivious piano player who continued to tinkle. Then the woman mopped at the bar, and things shifted back. Watch me, one of the players in the corner said, and matched three hearts with four spades emptying his hand. The one with the hearts swore handed over his bet, and the next was dealt. The gunslinger approached the bar. "'You got hamburger?' he asked. "'Sure.' She looked him in the eye, and she might have been pretty when she started out, but now her face was lumpy, and there was a livid scar corkscrewed across her forehead. She had powdered it heavily, but had called attention rather than camouflaging. "'It's dear, though.' "'I figured. Give me three burgers and a beer.' Again that subtle shift in tone. Three hamburgers. Mouths watered, and tongues licked at saliva with slow lust. Three hamburgers. That would go you five bucks, with the beer. The gunslinger put a gold piece on the bar. Eyes followed it. There was a sullenly smoldering charcoal brazier behind the bar and to the left of the mirror. The woman disappeared into a small room behind it, and returned with meat on a paper. She scrimped out three patties and put them on the fire. The smell that arose was maddening. 
The gunslinger stood with stolid indifference, only peripherally aware of the faltering piano, the slowing of the card game, the sidelong glances of the barflies. 